So glad that my sermon notes were there on the music stand. I was worried for a second, as you should have been. It'd be really fun to see what, just see what's in my head this morning. Well, speaking of which, uh, we live in an age of disillusionment uh, with the church. Uh, membership and attendance decline in all types of churches and denominations, and just general trust in the church as an institution is declining, and we can say that in part that's uh, because of rising secularism, uh, but we can also attribute it to uh, churches and pastors behaving badly, people of God mistreating and abusing others under their care. Uh, sometimes it makes national headlines about celebrity pastors, uh, but it happens in small churches and small towns as well. As one observer pointed out uh, and put it, many young people are leaving the church not because they don't believe what we believe, they're leaving because they don't think we believe what we say we believe, based on the way we sometimes act. How should we respond to this moment? There's a lot that could be said about that, uh, but Amos 3, which uh, Tom just read, I think gives us some, some pieces of the puzzle, at least by way of application. In case you missed last week, uh, again, uh, we've started a new short series uh, for the remainder of the summer on the book of Amos. And Amos was, of course, an Old Testament prophet. He prophesied sometime around 750 B.C. or so, I think. Am I right? I don't know. Yeah, Mike says that sounds good. So this is one of the earliest prophetic books. Uh, around 200 years after the nation of Israel split in two, uh, Judah to the south and Israel to the north, Amos is from Judah, but he's prophesying in the north in Israel. And his message is not a pleasant one. God is coming to judge them. They have grossly and persistently disobeyed God's law. And usually at this point we think about idolatry, right? Worshiping foreign gods. Uh, but Amos barely mentions idolatry throughout his nine chapters. Maybe once or twice it comes up. Instead, what Amos explicitly focuses on almost entirely is what we might call injustice, what we might call the second great commandment, failure to love your neighbor as yourself. And because of this persistent, unrepentant sin, disaster is coming to the people of God. How did God's people manage to so sear their consciences that they ignored God's word for hundreds of years, trampling on their neighbors, their brothers and sisters within the people of God? How do you carry on doing evil when you really should and really do know better? Well, Amos 3, I think, gives us a, a few clues as to how Israel managed that. But before we get to that main point, I want to uh, look at the final verses of Amos chapter 3. This is verses 13 through 15, if you have your Bible open. Sorry, I don't have slides again. Uh, these verses help us to just kind of review the context of what's going on in, in Israel up, up to this point. Um, it says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, uh, that, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish it. The great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So you see there's two types of structures there that become kind of the objects of, of judgment. The altars and then these houses or, or mansions. The altars in question 
uh, were started by King Jeroboam I. Uh, you may remember that um, Amos is writing under the reign of King Jeroboam II. I don't think they're actually related, but uh, King Jeroboam I was the first king of Israel after the split, kind of responsible in some ways for the, the split. Um, and Jeroboam was kind of worried that if his people kept going to the south, to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship at that temple like they were supposed to, then their hearts would eventually turn back toward that southern kingdom and the southern kings who ruled there, and he might lose control over them. So he needed to consolidate both religious and political power. So he sets up an alternate form of worship, and in a move that might sound kind of familiar to you, if you can think back to the book of Exodus, uh, Jeroboam made these two golden calves, and he said to the people, Behold your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He made altars for them, one in Bethel and another in Dan, I guess for convenience. And note that this isn't what we usually think of as idolatry per se in the sense of worshiping other foreign gods. It's more like graven images. It's creating a physical uh, image that represents the true God, that you kind of worship as the true God. In the ancient world, this sort of thing had to do with trying to control or manipulate the gods. They believed if you made an image, you could kind of um, control the deity that it represents. Almost, I guess you could think of it almost kind of like a voodoo doll, we, we might say today. For, so for Jeroboam, this is an attempt not just to manipulate God, but to manipulate God's people. He corrupted the worship of God, corrupted the people of God, he led them to violate one of the Ten Commandments by worshiping a graven image, and he did this in order to secure his own political power. And you can see in this the clear connection between how we view God and how we view people made in his image. If God is to be honored, then his image bearers are to be respected. But if God can be manipulated to serve us, then his image bearers can also be manipulated to serve us. Moving on to the second structure, uh, Amos focuses on the destruction of these lavish homes that the, the wealthy in Israel owned. They had both summer and winter homes, which is a luxury uh, even some ancient kings couldn't afford. Uh, they had homes inlaid with ivory, actual ivory palaces, uh, which, by the way, archaeological evidence confirms. In fact, Israel, uh, Israel, Amos is prophesying at the height of Israel's political and economic prosperity as, as the northern split-off kingdom. Uh, they had expanded their borders and grown in power and wealth to do a degree that they hadn't enjoyed since uh, they were unified under King Solomon. Now, it's not a sin to have nice things, a nice home, or even two. It's not a sin for the nation to prosper. The issue is that for Israel... Uh, the wealthy, powerful Israelites acquired that wealth by taking advantage of the poor and needy. So, for example, common scenario, you're an Israelite farmer. Congratulations, you're an Israelite farmer now. You've had a year or two of bad harvests, though, and so what do you do? Well, you, you can go to a merchant now at this stage in Israel's history and in the cities to get a loan to help you get by. And what choice do you have but to do that, right? How else are you going to survive? The loan, however, the way they calculated things, it comes out to the equivalent of about 60% uh, annual interest, and you inevitably are going to fail to pay it back, but not to worry. Uh, once you default, your lender will just seize your land and sell you and your family into slavery to cover the debt. So they end up owning you and your land at little cost to themselves, 
And as they keep doing this more and more, they keep expanding their land holdings, adding field to field, and they become richer and richer and gaining more power to oppress more. And they apparently thought that this was a perfectly fine thing to be doing. Like many today, they probably saw their wealth and their power as a mark of God's favor. Look how God has blessed us. Hasn't God promised to, to prosper those who serve him? How can we be wrong if we're doing so well for ourselves? God's got some stuff to say about this. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter now. It starts off in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So again, like Mike said last week, there are some things everybody knows are wrong. Uh, the Israelites certainly knew better. They not only had the, the light of conscience that everybody has, but they had the word of God. How did they persist in ignoring both? Well, they made some excuses. They had some self-delusions. And ironically, their core excuse, this comes up a few times in the prophets, has to do with the very covenant God had made with them. We are God's chosen covenant people. God is on our side. Nobody can speak against us. We sometimes expect other people to uh, act this way toward us, don't we? You're on my side. You're on my team. So it doesn't matter if I'm wrong, if I was a jerk to somebody. You're my friend. You've got to back me up anyway. You take my side. That's what Israel kind of wants from God here. God is not going to judge us. He's our God. He's for us, whatever we are. Amos turns that logic on its head, though. God's covenant, he says, doesn't protect you from God's judgment. In fact, it's precisely because of that covenant relationship that God is coming to judge Israel. And they really ought to have known this. This was part of the terms of the covenant uh, God had made with Israel uh, through Moses. If you were to turn to Deuteronomy 28 and drop down to verse 15, you feel free to do that now if you want, but just look through all of the curses God lists if they disobey, if they break that covenant. These covenant curses are part of the covenant. Israel conveniently ignored that part. It's like they failed to read the terms and conditions. Interestingly, though, God doesn't point to those curses in Amos. He doesn't go back to, to Deuteronomy, to the, the Sinai Covenant. Instead, the language here that, that we just read from those first three verses, verse two verses, rather, it goes all the way back to Genesis and the covenant God made with Abraham. By way of review or backstory, Abraham was, of course, the first of the patriarchs, the original pagan idol worshiper whom God called to leave all that behind, leave his old life and his land and follow God wherever God would lead him. This is the point where God starts to build the nation of Israel out of Abraham's family. It's ground zero for the Old Covenant, uh, Old Testament people of God. And Ab Amos is three, it has this language of all families of the earth, and that comes from that Abrahamic covenant. God said, through you all families of the earth will be blessed. Of all the families of the earth, God says through Amos, Israel is the one that I have known, not just known about them, because God knows obviously everything about every nation. When it says you only have I known, it, it's a relational knowledge, it's a covenant knowledge, covenant relationship. So Israel obviously is not the only nation to sin, but Israel is sinning in covenant relationship with God. 
Israel is using God's deliverance as an excuse to enslave people. Israel is using God's gifts as an excuse to steal. Israel is using God's care as an excuse to abuse and oppress. Israel was supposed to be an instrument of blessing to all families of the earth, but right now they're a curse even within their own family. And they think that because they have this privileged covenant position over all families of the earth, they're automatically better than the other nations. But God effectively says, no, you're not. If we skip down to verses 9 and 10, it says, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the big Philistine cities. And to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. And say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, that's Israel, and see the great tumult, tumults within her and the oppressed within her mists, midst. That's hard to say. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So Amos just listed two uh, pagan peoples, the Egyptians, who of course enslaved Israel for over 400 years, and the Philistines, who are just a constant thorn in the side of Israel and Judah. If you think of you know, big enemies of Israel, at least before uh, the exile, uh, these are probably the top two on your list, right? Yeah, Israel has been hurt by these people. They have some scars. They have been oppressed by these people. But even those nations would be shocked to come and see what was going on within Israel. Even those pagan sinners who enslaved them for 400 years know that this is wrong. The sentiment here reminds me of 1 Corinthians 5. This is where Paul is writing about uh, this man whose sexual sin that the Corinthian church was tolerating, and he says that this kind of sin is not tolerated even among the pagans. How is it that the people of God Old Testament or the New Testament here, can come to behave as bad as or even worse than the watching world. I think for the Israelites and the Corinthians, the situation is similar. The, the covenant, the blessings, the gifts of God have become a reason to boast in themselves rather than in God. God's people aren't the only ones who sin, but there is something especially odious about bringing God into your sin. God is personally invested in the injustices of the Israelites in a way that he wasn't with those other nations. Being in covenant relationship with God actually raises the stakes of morality. Remember what Paul says in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 6, your body is a member of Christ. Don't take the body of Christ and unite it with a prostitute. So all sexual immorality is rebellion against God. It's sin. But when believers do it, they somehow involve Christ in their sin. Paul says your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The, the church corporately is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When Christians tolerate sin, we desecrate that temple. We add sacrilege on top of our rebellion. So far from excusing sin, a covenant relationship with God brings greater weight to our actions. Why are there so many stories in the news about Christians behaving badly? In, in part, people just like to gawk at disaster. And in part, the world longs to watch the downfall of God's people. That's why the book of Obadiah exists, a prophecy against Edom, who was rejoicing in the, the calamity and the judgment that was poured out on, on God's people. 
On the other hand, I think even non-Christians correctly sense that when people hurt one another and do it, claiming to do it in the name of Christ, it's a whole other level of wicked. When someone points out wickedness in the church, be it whatever, abuse or domineering, financial impropriety, sometimes the response is, these people just want to burn it all down, uh, stop attacking the church, it's a distraction from the mission. The problem is, that's at heart the way Israel responded to Amos and the other prophets. Quite frankly, it's, it's also the way the religious leaders in the New Testament responded to Jesus. We're God's people. How dare you accuse us of wrongdoing? Abraham is our father. Now, I want to be clear here that for those who are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Even the sins that you still commit, even the sins that you're going to commit this afternoon, the sins that you're going to commit tomorrow and the day after that, because they are going to be there. They're not forgiven because of your obedience, but simply because Jesus died and rose again, full stop. However, if you hear that good news and think, great, I get to keep on sinning, Nobody can say anything about it. God won't punish me. I don't have to listen to any correction from anyone. I don't think you know Jesus. If you did, you wouldn't use his agonizing, atoning death for you as just uh, carte blanche, a blank check to go on spitting in his face all you want. That's what Israel is doing, essentially, in, in, in Amos's day, using God's grace toward them as an excuse to trample on God's law by trampling on other people made in God's image. And what the people of God need, always have needed, is an attitude of humility and repentance. We ought to care more about sin within the church than the world does. We ought to be relentless in fighting sin in our own lives. We ought to care more about sin in our own lives than, than the person who comes to us with correction. We ought to be fighting it with all the power that the Spirit supplies. And that's not catering to the demands of today's culture. That's basic Christian discipleship. Yet even as we view ourselves with humility, we ought to view God's word with unwavering confidence. I guess this is my second big point, if I bothered to give you any kind of outline for this. Uh, Consider verses 3 through 8. Here God targets another way that Israel tried to excuse their sin. We see this in pretty much all the prophets. Just kill the messenger. Uh, We saw last week, chapter 2, that Israel, one of the things they did is they told the prophets not to preach. and The prophet don't preach. Uh, In chapter 7, the king is going to tell Amos to shut up and go home, pretty much. Go back to Judah. Leave us alone. This follows from their first sort of covenant excuse or delusion. You know, we're God's covenant people, so anyone who speaks against us is a traitor enemy of God's people, if you're saying that you know, those foreign nations are God's judgment on us, well, you're, you're on the side of the enemy, those foreign nations. God targets this sentiment, I believe, in verses 3 through 8. This is Amos, the preacher, at his best. He's got this series of rhetorical questions leading the lis- listener along, and then he kind of clubs them over the head with his main point. He also does this with a, what I'm just going to call a bait-and-switch ending. Um, so, In the Old Testament, seven is a prominent number. You probably know this, right? Uh, There are lists of seven items where number seven uh, tends to reflect some kind of climax. Think of six days of creation, and then number seven is a day of rest. Uh, In this series of seven rhetorical questions, the first six are uh, all pretty obvious. Do do two people walk together if they didn't meet? No. You get two questions about a lion or maybe a 
maybe a thundercat. Um, does it uh, roar if there's no prey? No. Um, questions about birds getting caught if there's no trap? Uh, do people get scared when you sound the alarm that means invaders are coming to kill us all? Obviously, right? Uh, this is my rough summary, by the way. Um, it's all clear cause and effect. It has kind of the vibe of where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. Uh, but then the seventh question shifts in meaning, and we're talking about God now. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No, it does not. So because of that shift to God and the fact that it's number seven on that list, the Israelite listeners probably expecting this to be the point Amos is driving to. This is point number seven. God's in control, sort of drop the mic. That's it. But Amos goes on. He's not just talking about God's authority over disaster. He's talking about the authority of this prophecy. Verse 7, the next part. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that literally everything God ever does is accompanied by prophecy. Though wouldn't that be nice if a prophet would just come and tell us what God's doing in my life, right? Um, nor does it mean that all the mysteries of God are totally transparent to Amos. Amos can't possibly know or even comprehend God's plan down to the last detail, everything that God's going to do. The point is, in the context of the covenant between God and Israel, and simply considering the way God works, God will do his work here through a prophet who speaks his word. This is not about all-knowing prophets, but it's about the connection between God's work and God's word. God accomplishes his work through his word. This is even clearer in, in say, the book of Jeremiah. God calls Jeremiah and, and tells him, I can't remember everything on this list, but I've appointed you to tear down and to build up. This, this work that God is doing through Jeremiah, he kind of preaches them into exile. He says, is, is not his word like a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? And the first rhetorical question on Amos's list in chapter 3, uh, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet, probably anticipates this uh, way that God's plan and God's prophet go hand in hand together. So the point is that the words spoken by Amos are not just idle noise. They are the living and powerful word of God. The lion has roared. You see a trap spring up from the ground, you know that a bird is done, a bird is done for. If, if you're in the wilderness and you hear a lion roar, you know somebody's going to get eaten. And if you're in the city and you hear an, hear an alarm sound, uh, you know the city is about to be under siege. But when you hear the word of God, you know that God is on the move. The word of God that he has spoken is imbued with the same power that spoke creation into existence. Mere human words can fade and can fail, but there is no escape from the word of God. The church, like Amos, has been called to deliver a message from God to the world around us, and first and foremost, we're to preach the gospel, to call people to repent of their sins, to turn from idols, to serve the true and living God. And like Amos, some of those sins will be injustices committed against people made in God's image. And like Amos, some people won't want to hear what you have to say. They won't believe or accept what you have to say. They will tell you to go home, mind your own business. Christians are hypocrites. Why should we listen to you? 
Well, you shouldn't. You should listen to God. And of course, people don't accept the Bible as God's authoritative word. Um, I want to be careful here because you know, arguments for the truth of Scripture can be helpful, whether based in history or archaeology or philosophy and reason. Apologetics, that's the discipline of defending the faith to the outsiders, is, is a good and godly occupation. Even more important than that, uh, the integrity of the church is something we ought to care deeply about. We ought to live out what we believe before a, a world that's watching. We ought to exhort and encourage and hold each other accountable for how we live. But at the end of the day, our confidence in our mission does not depend on our apologetics or our godliness. God's work does not depend on our apologetics or godliness. God's mission to save the lost, to build a church for himself, doesn't depend apologetics or our godliness. God's word is living and effective because it is God's word. Like Amos, our confidence is this, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Well, the final section that I haven't gotten to yet, uh, looking in verse 12, drives home the point that there is no escape from the word that God has spoken. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch, part of a bed. There's some legal background to, to this verse. Um, has to do with um, shepherding and liability if you're a shepherd entrusted to, to watch somebody else's livestock or they just loan you a sheep and you're supposed to watch it uh, if something happens to it are you responsible since it was entrusted to you and in exodus 22 uh, there's a guideline here that if it was torn by beasts you're not liable it's the lion's fault right uh, so you bring in whatever carcass remains there'll be some carcass it's proof that the animal was destroyed by a predator, and therefore you're not liable. So the shepherd who rescues uh, two legs or a part of an ear, that's not really rescue, that's re recovery, right? He's recovering evidence that the animal has really been killed. He didn't just steal it or, or, or eat it himself or something. The remains are simply evidence that the sheep is no more. The fate of Israel is, is, is similar in, in a lot of ways. Uh, the Assyrians, who are, that's, this is the nation that ends up uh, exiling, uh, that God uses to, to punish Israel uh, a few decades later, they had a policy of trying to uh, eradicate the identities of the nations they conquered. So they would end up scattering the Israelites throughout their empire and moving other people into Israel's territory. The Babylonians didn't do this uh, when they conquered Judah in the south. They allowed the southern kingdom of Judah to remain Judahite, or, or, or Jewish, as we might say. But due to the Assyrian conquest, the nation of Israel ends up an ethnically mixed people who we know in New Testament times as the Samaritans. Maybe this is partly why the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Uh, they were a reminder of what was lost. They were all that was recovered from the jaws of the beast, but they were proof that Israel, as it had been, as it was, is no more. Even the nation of Israel today is descended from the Old Testament southern, southern not southern's kingdom, the southern kingdom. <laughs> we have the southern's kingdom right here. Uh, 
southern kingdom was, was, was the Judahites. But the point is that God's judgment is certain and it is inescapable. And there's a warning in that that still applies for all of us today. God's judgment is coming. The destruction of Israel was just a foreshadowing of the final judgment. When, as the creed says, he will return to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. 1 Corinthians 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's an unsettling proposition, isn't it? But don't make the same mistake that Israel did. Don't bury your head in the sand. Don't go on making excuses or deluding yourself. Continue to continue to pretend that your life will never end. It's better to face the truth, frightening as it is. The lion has roared. God's judgment will come on the living and the dead. How can we be ready? If you think judgment won't actually come, or if you think you'll make it through judgment because you're better than those people, or even if you think you'll make it through the judgment because you go to church, you self-identify as a Christian, you're deluding yourself. It doesn't take but a moment of self-examination before we start to realize that deep down we have been the same as Israel. You might not live in an ivory palace. You might not be selling your neighbor into slavery. But you probably do see God in some ways as a means to the end of your own glory. Do you see his people as tools or stepping stones for your own purposes? At heart, we have that same tendency to want to manipulate God and to manipulate our brothers and sisters. At heart, we're no better. There is no difference. We've all sinned. The only way to make it through that judgment is hidden in Christ. To admit to yourself, to admit to God, to confess ahead of time that you are not going to make it on your own and you don't deserve to make it on your own. To appeal to the death and resurrection of Christ as your only hope in life and in death and in judgment. Let go of any confidence in what you have done, who you are, or who you're better than, and instead boast in who Christ is and what he has done, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Let me close with this thought. Just as God's word of judgment is effective and inescapable, so also his word of grace is effective and inescapable. The gospel is living and effective. He has promised that those who come to him will never be turned away. He will hold you fast to the end. All his promises are yes and amen in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you spoke centuries ago, millennia ago, uh, through your servant, the prophet Amos. And we pray that you will take uh, what was worthy from this message and apply it to our hearts wherever we find ourselves in life. Uh, there are um, just, there's such richness to this. Uh, in, in some ways, we may identify with the people who were hurt by others, the people who were oppressed by others. And may we place our confidence and hope in the fact that your judgment is coming and that you will make all wrong things right 
that there is a God who sees and who knows and, and who cares for us. We also know that we are not just sinned against, but even worse, we are sinners. We sin against one another. I, I pray that um, you would press this convicting truth deep into our hearts, uh, that we owe you honor, that our lives are to be lived for you, and that we are to treat those around us according to your word, according to the fact that they are made in your image, according to uh, the, the principles that you have set down for us. Help us to see where we have transgressed this. Help us to um, take an honest look at, at our own lives, at our own relationships. Help us to repent. May we confess to one another when appropriate, when necessary. And may this drive us all the more to uh, the promised grace that you have given us in Christ. May we trust and rejoice that even as your word of judgment will not fail, so also your word of grace to us will never fail. Though we certainly fail, our God does not fail. And then as we go to the world as we consider the mission that you have given us, give, a, give us also this confidence in your word that it will not fail, it will not return void, that you will do what you have planned to do through us. We cannot derail your plan. We cannot derail your purposes. Your word is effective. May we simply trust in your word and speak, knowing that as we do, the lion will roar. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.